Just a heads up, today's show contains some graphic descriptions of violence, so please be mindful of that when you're choosing where and with whom you listen. So when you enter the mega camps, there's a lot of barbed wire. The entrances are very tightly controlled now. You'll see men in in camo uniform with guns and rifles. And if you are in an unmarked car or a car that doesn't clearly say UNICEF or Save the Children, uh, they'll stop you and ask you for your camp pass or for your documentation that says you're allowed to be in the camps itself. Rebecca Tan is the Southeast Asia Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. She spent two weeks this year inside a refugee camp in Bangladesh, one that's virtually closed off from the outside world and literally closed off to visitors at night. The camp is located on the southeastern coast in a district called Cox's Bazaar. So the Kutupalong Mega Camp is the single largest refugee encampment in the world. It's home now to about a million refugees, half of whom are children. Cox's Bazaar is located on a pretty hilly area. Uh, So if you can imagine, these shelters are stacked, uh, you know, closely to one another. They're very small, um, and families as large as eight or ten live in each one. And so everything that happens in these communities, everything that happens in each block is known very quickly by the entire community. And when you're physically in one of these shelters, you realize that, that it's, it's never quiet. In the daytime, at all hours, you will hear babies crying, roosters crowing, Again, we weren't allowed to be in there after dark, but that at least gave us an idea of what it was like to be in these shelters overnight when you might hear, you know, a hundred yards away, someone being shot to death. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Chris Velasco. It's Monday, May 1st. In today's episode, Rebecca takes us inside the largest refugee camp in the world and into the lives of a community that much of the world seems to keep forgetting, the Rohingyas. They came here fleeing violence, but now they're facing growing violence from within. We'll uncover the story of one of those men fighting for his family's and his people's survival. Does he feel safe here? So, you know, he, he said that he is not safe here. Rebecca, can you give us a better sense of who these refugees are and how they wound up there in the first place? So actually, the Rohingya have been coming to Bangladesh in waves since the 1970s. The two countries, they share a border that's separated by the Naf River. The Rohingya are 
uh, is an ethnic group that's native to the western Rakhine state in Myanmar. They've long been persecuted uh, by the Myanmar military, in part because the vast majority of them are Muslim compared to the predominantly Buddhist uh, majority in Myanmar. So in 2017, there was a military-led, really ethnic cleansing campaign, something the UN has now called you know, a classic textbook example of ethnic cleansing, something that is now being investigated by the International Court of Justice as genocide. Some 700,000 Rohingya moved from Myanmar to Bangladesh in the span of a couple of months. And so in 2017, there was a massive exodus, one of the biggest movements of migrants in recent history. In Bangladesh, um, the refugees came into the country seeking refuge, which they did get initially. Uh, but now the conditions that they face in Bangladesh are becoming more and more excruciating. During the pandemic, uh, the Bangladeshi government basically cut off access for a lot of international journalists to go into uh, the camps, in part because some journalists were finding the conditions for these refugees deteriorating day by day. So it was really important to get back to these camps and see for ourselves what was going on once, you know, the restrictions started to loosen up a little bit. You know, local Bangladeshi agencies were reporting that there was a spike in militant violence. We were seeing reports of murders, abductions, um, and we really wanted to investigate and, and assess all of this for ourselves. So... Because you managed to spend two full weeks there, as close to it as you could manage, can you give us a sense of what day-to-day life kind of looks like inside this camp, this mega camp, as you put it? What's quite unique, I guess, about the refugee camps in Bangladesh is that in, in some other camps for IDPs who are internally displaced people, the refugees or, 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 the, or the residents are able to seek some form of employment. They're able to supplement their food rations by finding jobs in the local community. This is not true for the Rohingya refugee camps. Legally, in Bangladesh, they are not allowed to seek formal employment. And so in the camps, more or less, the refugees are highly reliant on the aid that's supplied by UN agencies and other aid groups. So at the crack of dawn, aid agencies go inside the camps and they start distributing food, non-food items like blankets and medicine. And when it comes to about 3 or 5 p.m., these aid agencies have to leave because of security concerns. It sounds like getting into this camp itself is quite an ordeal. Can you tell us a bit about the people who sort of helped you? I understand you had a, a translator that kind of worked through some of this process with you. That's right, yeah. So we had a very essential team member. He's a local journalist. He's Rohingya himself. He, he came to Bangladesh with an earlier wave of refugees back in the 1990s and has really grown up in the camps. Uh, so he knows the camps very well. Unfortunately for this podcast, we can't name him. He, he still lives in the camps. His family members still live in the camps. And it's not safe for him to be associated with some of the reporting that he helped us do. Uh, But he was essential. He helped us speak uh, to many of the refugees. He helped us gain their trust. Crucially, Rohingya is is a language that not a lot of people speak. Even the local Bangladeshi aid workers, some of them speak a language close to it, but it's not precisely Rohingya. So to access and to communicate with many of the refugees, you, you really need to work with one of their own. So 
walk us through sort of the way the camp was laid out and, and what you learned that you maybe wouldn't have learned had you not had the help of your, your translator. What I learned pretty quickly was that people were terrified of a lot of different things, including many of the militant groups that have spread, proliferated in, in the camps. Having our Rohingya colleague there really helped to gain their trust quickly. So who did you meet that was kind of open to telling you their story? Many of them were eager to share their stories. Many of them were glad that someone from outside had come back in um, to hear how they were doing. Again, this is a community and a population of people who were once you know, in the center of international attention. Uh, they saw news crews and documentary crews come, but that attention has since faded. So they're glad to hear that someone was back and, and wanted to see, you know, how they were doing, the conditions that they were grappling with. But there were some subjects, some topics, you would see people immediately kind of clench up or tense up, even though you could tell that they wanted to tell you what was going on. If we include your face and we include your name, they will know that you spoke to us. And that comes with some risks. Though you write or not, we are still in danger. It doesn't uh, add more security reason. You know that the same problem we will be facing all the time. Whether or not you write. So, Mohammed Ismail is a... Um, 23-year-old Rohingya refugee. When we met him for the first time, standing with his crutches, hopping on his one foot, he's skinny, he's bookish. Um, and when he told us that he used to want to be a teacher, it, it made sense. He, he was shy and, and his voice was quite gentle. So when he first arrived in Bangladesh back in 2017, he did not have anything to do for six months. My Rohingya colleague helps to translate as we get the beginnings of what turned out to be a really dramatic story. So Ismail came to Bangladesh um, in 2017 with the mass exodus. He lived in the western Rakhine state of Myanmar, like most Rohingya, with um, nine of his siblings. He was going to school there. He was hoping eventually one day to become an imam uh, or hoping to become a teacher at his local Islamic school. He and his family didn't want to leave when they started uh, firing arms, I mean, setting fire in the houses, then they had no other options but escape. They started to see the fires that were erupting in villages nearby. That's when they felt like they had no choice. What does he remember of that journey? What was it like? What was that experience like? <laughs> So when they fled from Myanmar, they only had their, I mean, clothes that they wore. So they were not allowed to come uh, across the roads 
local pathways so they had to come through uh, forest and jungles mm. and it was heavily raining then he fled uh, with his family on foot uh, through the jungles and crossed the Naf river across the border to Bangladesh to where they are today in Cox's Bazar When he arrived here in the camps, um, they were not allowed to seek formal employment. Um, because he had a big family, Ismail started to look for opportunities with uh, aid agencies. Aid agencies could give out small stipends to the refugees if they were able to do odd jobs here and there. And he got a job with IOM, which is a, a UN agency. And so did many of his cousins and many of his brothers. Over the years, he settled into refugee life. He married. He tried to keep learning. Um, he learned a little bit of Bengali. But things, starting last year, started to take a turn for the worse. It started, he said, um, with the killing of someone called Mohibullah. Top Rohingya community leader Mohibullah, belonging to a refugee camp in Bangladesh's Cox's Bazar, has been shot dead. Mohibullah was probably the most famous community leader in the Rohingya refugee camps. He was a very genteel man and he made an international name for himself by going around the various shelters and trying to document the atrocities of the Myanmar military. Many Rohingya leaders have gone into hiding after his killing. He traveled out of the camps to Geneva to testify and he'd gradually become, in the eyes of some militant groups, too powerful. So I should clarify here, there are a range of Rohingya militant groups that originated in Myanmar. They were formed as a kind of armed resistance to the Myanmar military during the ethnic cleansing campaign. After the exodus, these groups, um, groups like the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, the most famous one of them, ARSA, set up bases in the refugee camps. And for several years, everybody knew that they existed, but it wasn't a big deal. They didn't feel like they were targets. But starting in 2021, as the conditions started to get worse in Bangladesh, and as the hope of returning to Myanmar started to dwindle, these groups started to get more and more extremist. They've just become radicalized by desperation. They wanted to consolidate control over the camps, which they felt that they should control. And they saw figures like Mohibullah as a, as a threat. They came after him, reportedly. Um, they've denied it. And they and other militant groups started to assassinate methodically people that they thought wielded too much influence or people who they saw as informants to the Bangladeshi government or to aid agencies. And this is how Ismail's family started to get drawn into violence that they really wanted no part of. So Ismail's only real crime isn't the right word because that's not what this is. But his only real sin in the eyes of these people is that he worked for an aid agency and that led them to what? Do what to him exactly? He was drawn into the violence um, because he tried to seek justice for his cousins and for his brothers who had been targeted. And what happened to Ismail? So it started with one of Ismail's cousins, Muhammad Hussein. Muhammad Hussein had a job reporting to the Bangladeshi government which shelters needed repairing. 
Um, and in 2021, he started to notice that more and more of them were being burned down in the middle of the night, or he saw damage that didn't seem natural. It seemed like people had damaged various shelters. He reported these incidents um, to the Bangladeshi government and became tagged as an informant. So one day in broad daylight, um, eyewitnesses told Ismail and later told us. So he was murdered in in day, in day. I mean uh, at uh, four or five p.m. like things. So and someone uh, came to their shelter, screaming like your son and was murdered in the football field. Muhammad Hussain was stabbed in a field where children play soccer. Okay, so after Muhammad Hussain murder, mm. it was him who faced this situation. Mm. Ismail soon after takes up the mandate of trying to seek justice for his cousin. Yeah. So when uh, police asks questions, so he was open to them. Mm. And, and he seeks justice. Mm. And as a result, becomes targeted as well. What happened to him? So one night, uh, as uh, they don't have a toilet inside a shelter, they need to go out. Mm. No, it was midnight around. Uh, 2.35 a.m. One night uh, in September last year, he was walking his wife to the latrine, in part because it had become so dangerous in the camps, when he was swarmed by some 50 to 60 men, he said. A lot of them were wearing masks. Mm. All of a sudden, uh, a gang came and uh, shot his mouth. One of them pointed a gun at his head. Despite the opposition and the screaming of his family, he was taken by these men Some, uh, unknown places. to the bottom of a hill, uh, a bit away from his shelter. Some uh, bushes were there. And they attacked him. They uh, light him on the ground. and With him. knives, with machetes, with pipes. And hit him with hammer uh, to his knee. He survived through the morning when he was found by someone who was going for their morning prayer. and He begged the person to inform his family. The person initially was worried and didn't want anything to do with him because of, again, how dangerous it might be to be associated with him, but eventually went and told his father, who came running and found him, found his son, at the bottom of a hill missing two of his limbs. Ismail barely survived. He still thinks to this day that he wasn't supposed to. He thinks that the attackers left him only because they thought that he was going to die. But just a little bit after he returned to the camps from the hospital, his brother and his brother-in-law were shot dead outside their shelter. Ismail's father, who's now lost one son and had another son violently attacked. When we met him, he was really beaten down. So he felt very sad. 
he still has the t-shirt, um, the white t-shirt stained with blood from when his other son uh, was shot dead in front of his shelter. He hasn't washed it, he's kept it as a, as a reminder of what happened that night and a reminder of the justice that has not come. Given the fear that kind of permeates every part of this situation, do you was it your sense he was worried about sharing his story with you? And, and what was your reaction to that story as you heard it for the first time? We spoke to Ismail over the course of a week, um, meeting him for the first time in his shelter and then talking to him over the phone, over voice notes, and then going back to his shelter again. And throughout that process, that was my top concern. I don't want anything bad to happen to him more, right? So if at any point, you know, after we leave, he changes his mind or he gets worried. And so in, in many different ways over the course of getting to know him, we posed this question to him. And very consistently, he came back to us with the, with the same answer, which was... You know, he's decided, actually. He had decided. He wasn't scared. And he wanted people to know. And even in the aftermath, he was still receiving death threats, right? He's gotten fresh death threats almost every other day. So we... We're in his shelter speaking to him, and I asked him whether he feels any safer now uh, than he did a few months ago. And he played me on his phone the death threats that he received just a couple days ago. It's from someone that Ismail says he knows, someone who has been terrorizing him and his family. Roughly what it's translated into, it starts with, hey, Ismail, do you know me? Why are you telling false words? Why are you lying? And in another, he threatens Ismail and tells him, hey, backtalker, you're uncivilized. You're an animal and the son of an animal. You're disabled. If you want to keep talking, make sure you have the courage to do so. She's continued to receive these death threats that he's forwarded on to me. Coming up, Rebecca searches for answers from those responsible for the camp's safety to find out what they are and aren't doing about Ismail's calls for justice. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. So in the face of all of this, Ismael seems committed to finding justice. But what is that process like? What 
can he do from here? So this is a big part of what we uncovered while we were there, which is meaningfully, there isn't a mechanism for someone like Ismail to seek justice. There are various agencies, international aid agencies, Bangladeshi law enforcement agencies that are meant to protect the Rohingya refugees, but they aren't really doing their jobs. The primary law enforcement agency in the camps is the armed police battalion. Before the refugee camps existed, this force was deployed in Bangladesh effectively as riot police. Legally, they don't have the authority to investigate crimes. And so what happens is that they sometimes refer incidents of violent crime to the local police district, but that agency was overwhelmed long before the Rohingya arrived. And the result is that a lot of the violent crime that happens, abductions, kidnappings, rapes, never get investigated and the perpetrators are never brought to justice. They're allowed to continue living in the camps and continue taking new victims. Aid agencies like the UN and other leading humanitarian organizations are also meant to protect the refugees, but they don't have the mandate, they say, they told us, to ensure the physical security of the camps. And that means that when Ismail wrote to them again and again when his cousin was killed, when his brothers were killed, when he wrote to them letter after letter asking for protection, asking for help, he didn't really get much of a response. And how common is that experience? Do other people who face these kinds of fears or or situations, do they feel the same kind of futility as they try to get some kind of response from the people who are ostensibly in charge here? As far as we're aware, yes. While we were there, while we were in the camps walking through these narrow alleyways and when we were talking to other groups reporting out other stories, um, individual refugees would come up to us and just tell us, my niece has been kidnapped or you know, my neighbor's daughter has gone missing, my neighbor's son has been attacked, um, so-and-so has been raped. There were all these violent crimes that had happened to them then they didn't know who they could go to with that information. So when they saw us, they, they thought they would tell us. And in many cases, there's not much else that we could do except take down their names and their stories. But after we left, their options for who to go to with their information are limited. The police, when we spoke to them, the armed police battalion, some of their commanding officers say that they want to investigate these violent crimes, but they simply don't have the authorization or the capacity to do so. And then there are other reports that say constables and personnel in these agencies are corrupt and that they've been abusing their powers within the camps. All of it just means that for victims of crime like Ismail and the many others that we met in the camp, there's little to no path to justice. Rebecca, have the organizations behind these killings claimed responsibility for any of them? No, they have not. They've consistently denied that they've killed or harmed other Rohingya and insisted that they've only been targeting the Myanmar military. But in the case of Mohibullah, for example, Bangladeshi security forces and police forces have now arrested several members of ARSA in connection 
Bhutto's assassination, several of them um, will soon be going to trial. Who's actually responsible for governing this camp? And do you have a sense that they know that all of this is happening inside? Yes, very much so. After we went to Cox's Bazaar, we traveled to Dhaka, the Bangladeshi capital, to speak to the state minister for foreign affairs, Minister Alam. He's been a spokesperson in many ways for the Rohingya crisis and the Rohingya issue in Bangladesh. And when we spoke to him, he admitted to us that he recognized the issue of violence in the camps was bad and getting worse by the minute. Do you think, from your perspective, you know, the security situation, it's evolved over the past five oh, years? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And how would... It's, it's worsening by minute. Right. Um, and he acknowledged as well that there weren't easy paths to justice or protection. Even with, the, with police, you know, we have this frustrating uh, problem in our hand. They are foreign nationals. He didn't have a good response to our questions on whether those mechanisms existed for the Rohingya. If it was Bangladeshi, the police would investigate, the criminal would go to trial, would go to prison, mm-hmm. right? But for Rohingya, what, what, what available options are there, mm-hmm. given well, the situation? Well, you ask me a very valid question, but unfortunately, I don't think I have an answer uh, to it. But, he said, Bangladesh is doing the best that it can. It's an impoverished country that has taken in a million refugees, something that he says is unheard of in most other parts of the world, in Europe and in the U.S. You see governments fortifying their borders to turn away refugees. Bangladesh can't cope with the demands of a densely populated refugee camp, um, and it needs the support and the help of other international donors. It sounds like Bangladeshi security forces are doing a lot of the -the on-the-ground patrol and enforcing the safety mechanisms that they're able to in these camps, but you spoke to them. You know, what was their sense of of what was going on and what they were able to do about it? We spoke to several commanding officers in Cox's Bazaar who were in charge of the physical security of the camps. They said superficially, you know, that things are now under control, something that you know, their superiors in Dhaka admit and acknowledge is probably not true. But more meaningfully, you know, they painted as a portrait of what was going on in the camps. Many of the personnel that they have stationed in the camps are fresh out of police training. They're young, they're ill-equipped to deal with militant violence. They were trained to be riot police, to be crowd control. They were not trained to go to war with terrorist organizations. We spoke to three commanding officers, um, including the commander of APBN 14, um, which is in charge of physical security in some of the camps that have seen the biggest surges of violence over the past year. The commanding officer's name was Saeed Harun or Rashid. Uh, They get the basic training, like other police officers. The constable are getting six months basic training and the sub-inspector get one year and ASP get one year's basic training. At the same time, they say that they're heavily under-resourced. Being stationed at the camps, they say, is a type of hardship posting. They were eager to show us the barracks um, where they're situated inside the camps and how run down they were and how the conditions were barely better than the shelters themselves for the refugees. They don't have the legal ability to investigate 
crimes and bring perpetrators to court. Why haven't you been able to investigate now or in the past? It's uh, doesn't cover the law of the APBN. There is the law of the APBN. Right, the mandate doesn't. We don't have the investigation power. And so in all, the security personnel are both ill-equipped both in terms of resources and in terms of the protocols that they have available to them to respond to this threat of militant violence. On a larger scale, the UN is involved in all of this too. What's your sense of the role the UN plays in this and in other countries? So the lead agency at the Rohingya refugee camps is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR for short. They expressed to me that even though they recognize that there's been a surge in violence and they recognize the toll that this has been taking on refugees, that they're not in charge of physical security. So even though their mandate is to protect refugees, they cannot meaningfully address the rise in militant violence, they said, because that is the mandate of the Bangladeshi government. Speaking to the country director there, Johannes, he emphasized that he really thinks that the Bangladeshi government needs to take charge of this and that UNHCR is not in the position to deal with it, something that's been a cause of frustration for many of the refugees that I spoke to. Ismail certainly seemed to think that UNHCR did not pay enough attention to what was happening to him and failed to stop what became a series of killings. So let me just make sure I'm understanding this situation correctly. The United Nations has basically said managing the problems that are going on in these camps is a problem that is left to ultimately the Bangladeshi government. The Bangladeshi government is saying, we acknowledge this is getting worse by the minute, but enforcing that is not really something we're able to do, and that is more of a local problem. And the security forces who are in the camps every day are not equipped to do really anything beyond riot control. Is that more or less right? That's more or less right. The one clarification is that UNHCR is prepared to deal with other issues. It's just when it comes to physical security, they say that that's beyond their means, that that is not their mandate. That's something that's been very clearly demarcated as belonging to the Bangladeshi government. I don't know that anyone really expects the UN to be on the ground and actively managing day-to-day life in these camps. Is it more a question of, of resources? Are they being mismanaged? Is there not enough aid to start with? What's your sense of what's happening there? Certainly, both the Bangladeshi government and UNHCR will say that there is not enough resources and that there is not enough aid. Something that the UNHCR um, and other aid agencies have pointed to is that part of what is driving the radicalization is the increasingly desperate conditions at the camps itself. Um, And that's some of what I referred to earlier, the fact that refugees can't seek gainful employment, the fact that aid dollars are dwindling in general, in part because donors are redirecting their funds to other issues such as the war in Ukraine. These are really making the conditions and, and the people in the camps feel more and more desperate And that is part of what's driving the rise in in not just militant violence, but petty crime in in abductions and kidnappings and in armed robberies. Rebecca, as we're having this conversation, it's been one year since Secretary of State Antony Blinken formally declared that what the Myanmar government did to the Rohingya was, in fact, a genocide. The United States reaffirms its broader commitment to accompanying Rohingya on this path out of genocide toward truth 
toward accountability, toward a home that will welcome them as equal members, that will respect their human rights and dignity. It's not been a great year. Do you have any sense that things will get better for these people? The Genocide Declaration was welcomed at the time by many of the Rohingya refugees as a step forward. But since then, the conditions that they've had to deal with in Bangladesh have only worsened. And I think that's part of what they've found most wrenching, which is just as the world is starting to recognize what they went through in 2017, as the ICJ, as the International Court of Justice, which is the UN's top court, closely examines evidence of the atrocities that they suffered, as the world learns more and more about that, they're ignoring what's happening to them now. Rebecca, for Ismail and people like him, what are their options going forward? So the facts are, many of them have no options. Many of them were made stateless back in Myanmar, which means that they're not citizens of Myanmar or citizens of any country for that matter. They can't leave Bangladesh. And yet, many of them are trying at extremely high costs. In the past year, the UN has reported that at least 3,500 Rohingya refugees have tried to leave Bangladesh and Myanmar on these deadly sea journeys to other parts of Southeast Asia and South Asia. Many of them are dying at sea. Even more of them are being drawn into trafficking networks. So the short answer is they don't really have any options. And some of them are taking what seems to be an unimaginable option to squeeze onto a really rickety fishing vessel at risk of possibly dying at sea just for a shot at life elsewhere. Since I've left the camp, the conditions in the camp have also continued to deteriorate. Just a couple weeks after we left, there was a massive fire in the camps that destroyed 2,000 or so shelters and left 12,000 people displaced from their homes. This has not yet been confirmed, but uh, a panel of Bangladeshi investigators said that it was not an accident, but an act of arson, and they suspect that militant groups might have been behind what happened there. Rebecca, you've covered this story for a long time, and it's clearly been deteriorating for a while, too. What's, what's your sense of what our responsibility is to these people? What do we owe the Rohingya? It's extremely hard to say, but I do think at a minimum, attention. I think for someone like Ismail to have put himself further in harm's way in order to tell a story, my sense of it while reporting on it and writing it was, I sure hope people pay attention and I sure hope they care because the stakes for him for the rest of the Rohingya, extremely high when they tell their stories. So I really don't know what the political solutions are, and frankly, very few people seem to know. But I think at a minimum, we owe these people some of our attention. And sort of take us home, where is Ismail now? How is he doing? He's really kind of risked 
it sounds like almost everything in talking to you. Is he okay if you stayed in touch? We stay in touch, and I try to text him at least once a day just to know how he's doing. The death threats have continued. They've gotten worse from these unknown numbers that have been terrorizing him for months at this point. And things have gone so bad recently that he no longer exits his shelter, except for, for medical help. At this point, he's asked you know, other members of his family not to leave their shelter as well, except to pick up food rations. Given what has happened to him and his family, he doesn't really feel like he's living anymore. Actually, it makes no difference whether he is alive or dead. And so he'd rather share his story and put himself in greater danger if it meant that the world would know what was happening in the camps and that maybe it wouldn't keep happening. So, you know what? Why he's doing these things? He feel like if entire family got killed, still people know it, then the remaining families here, remaining Rohingyas who are gonna survive may have a safety. Rebecca, thank you for your reporting and for sharing Ismail's story. Thank you for having me. Rebecca Tan is the Southeast Asia Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Alana Gordon and edited by Rena Flores. It was mixed by Sean Carter. If our show, and this episode in particular, helps make your world a little bigger, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work that we do, and you get access to the kind of deep, urgent reporting we do from around the world. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe to learn more. I'm Chris Velasco. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.